Well, good evening, everyone. I hope you all had a wonderful Easter. I'm actually taping this on Holy Thursday, so my Easter hasn't happened yet, but I know you probably won't listen until, until after Easter. So I look forward to meeting with you again next Monday. Um, but today I'm, I'm going to um, finish up the Moral Life series with um, just kind of an overview of the gospel of life and what, what do we mean by the gospel of life. I, th I think a lot of times we have this sense that the gospel of life is only about abortion, maybe only about capital punishment. But really the gospel of life is just about human life and its great dignity. Um, and this dignity is really proclaimed for us in sacred scripture through philosophy, through culture, through the natural and the civil law. And so it's important for us to kind of look at all of those places that really provide for us the truth about what human life really is. And so the gospel of life is really this proclamation that culminates in the incarnation of God, which validates for us the goodness of humanity. I mean, God became man. That's how good man is. And that's what Jesus has really come to proclaim, that we're called to more. We're made for more than what we often settle for. So this teaching originates primarily in scripture for the Christian, right? It's, it's um, Genesis tells us we're made in the image and likeness of God. It tells us that man is the crown of creation. He's like God. He's different from the rest of creation. Um, certainly philosophy talks about this, that man is different from the rest of creation. You know, Aristotle, you know, speaks about how, you know, the human person um, begins as, you know, an embryo and culminates into, you know, this full-grown person at birth. Um, he compares it to an acorn and an oak tree. And so what happens in our origins really, really kind of helps us to understand who we are. And so my point in saying that is that, you know, an embryo is never going to be anything but a human person, right? An acorn is never going to be a human person. It's never going to be a dog. It's never going to be a cat. But neither is a human embryo. A human embryo is, is human, right? And so we have everything we are from that first moment of conception. And even if we can't discern that personhood comes to be at the moment of conception, we have to give it the benefit of the doubt, right? Because we can never tell when the soul enters into a human person. But we know that what comes to be in that first instant will never be anything but human. And so we can't decide. I mean, that's the great mystery of life. We can't decide um, something that we can really never know because it's a supernatural knowledge. We can, we can discern things from medical science, and medical science has done a great job of that. I think even pro-abortionists, pro-choicers, will um, you know, give in to the argument that, okay, it's human, okay, you know, it's alive, um, but then the argument of personhood comes around. But is it really a person? And then we get that argument of functionalism, and this is very important for you to kind of think about. I think a lot of times we, we determine someone's humanity based on what they can do. But what the church calls us to is to determine someone's humanity based on what they are, not what they can do. And if it's, if it's just about what we can do, then who decides what doing matters, right? 
is it do you have to be a certain intellectual capacity do you have to be a certain physical beauty do you have to have all functional um, capacity in, in the sense of being able to use your arms and your legs so someone who has had an amputation is not human enough I mean when do what what determines that no what determines that is your humanity sacred scripture is clear about the goodness of life it talks about it throughout sacred scripture the goodness of, of child the goodness of birth the goodness um, of the human person made in the image and likeness of God and that God has always had us in mind, right? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I mean, I think culturally, um, this has really changed for us. It used to be that, you know, children were always seen as a great blessing, certainly um, economically, because they could help make money and work the farms and do all the things that we did um, in, in past times that really took a large family to make happen. Um, and today, you know, we've, we've kind of lost that connection to the land. Now it's more about, well, if I'm going to have to pay for, you know, kids to go to college, I better only have one or two, you know? Um, and so we've kind of lost our way in terms of, um, the goodness of life, the goodness of children, the blessing that they are, um, to our families being, you know, for myself, just being a member of a large family, I, I just recognize the goodness of of large families, of having, you know, five people in my life and then their children now, their husbands, their wives, to whom um, I can share my world. What a beautiful gift that is. And so culture has really changed in its sense of, of you know, fertility, children, because I think we focus more on the material dimension of life instead of this relational um, dimension of life. Certainly natural law, which um, we've, we talked about when we talked about the Ten Commandments, remember the perfect articulation of the natural law are the Ten Commandments, accessible by reason. So, so the natural law is a law that's given to us in creation by God that we can discern, and so reason can intuit natural law. And natural law tells us that killing is bad, right? And life is good. Civil law is based on the natural law. That's why murder is, you know, something you're going to be in prison for. Um, even slander or um, killing people in other ways, right? Stealing, those kinds of things. So civil law is really based on the natural law. And all of them, in their foundations, support the gospel of life that the church proclaims. I think what, what has happened in, in Pope John Paul II spoke about this culture of death that exists. This culture of death is when we don't look at the human person as a gift anymore. We look at the human person as someone um, who can produce instead of someone who is. Um, and in his isness, in his being, in his very existence, um, he or she is good, is a gift. And so that's the culture of life versus the culture of death that if you aren't able to produce, if you've come, in at, come at a time that's not convenient for me, then I get to determine that you no longer exist. And so that culture of death has really been set up for us by what John Paul II talked about as a structure of sin. 
And a structure of sin comes about in our culture when we become forgetful of God, when we think that we can't really sin or we can't actually um, suffer as a result of our sin, that, you know, God is somehow, you know, a fairy godmother and, and will never actually allow us the consequences that we prepare for our own lives and our own eternity. And so the structure of sin, just like any sin, distorts our ability to see things clearly. It lessens our power to choose the good. It makes us focus on self instead of the other, which is what we were really created for. Remember, our meaning is, is our dignity being made in the image and likeness of God, and our purpose is to love. And this culture of death really um, is all about um, living out the consequences of sin in our life. On this first slide, I, I put orthodoxy and orthopraxis, and this is important because, you know, what you're learning in this course is, is orthodoxy, like what does the church teach? That's what orthodoxy is, to be orthodox. What's the orthodox teaching of the Catholic Church? And that's really what you're learning. That's what the catechism contains. That's what sacred scripture points to. Orthopraxis is living that truth. We need both. We need to know the truth and we need to live the truth. And the greatest crisis of our time is the inability for people to do that. Because more than 90% of, of folks in the United States claim Christianity, but are living out of that Christian gift of, of love and law is really not present. Um, we wouldn't have abortion on the books. We wouldn't have physician-assisted suicide on the books if, if we were really living out the basic Ten Commandments that were given to us by God. And so I'm not going to revisit the whole story of Genesis, but your next slide kind of points to this idea about the beginning, that we're really, we're really shown the goodness of life by the order in which God creates things. Like things are orderly, right? Things have like process. Like if you look at how the body works, my goodness, it's like a miracle. I mean, it's taken us how many years to figure out, you know, just how the body's put together, let alone how different organs actually function and the enzymatic and chemical kind of substances that come together to make us do what we do on a daily basis. It's just amazing. And so just the way God has made us indicates that something greater than ourselves has created this. And this goodness is given to man um, really at its, at its highest, highest level. So the order in which God provides to us is very beautiful. Um, there's a unity to everything, right? Um, and what do I mean by that? I mean that from that, that first time that God creates, he creates everything out of that that chaos, in a sense, um, that unity that was that incohate mass, right, in Genesis 1, where it talks like that God takes that incohate mass and from it, he creates everything. And so really from the very first moment of creation, we're all made of the same stuff. But then God gives distinction and difference to each living thing. And to man, he gives the highest distinction the highest difference, that we're unique from all of creation because we're made like God. And then original solitude points to that idea that as human persons we're made for God. Original unity says that we're made for love. 
and original sin is what screwed it all up, right? It made our, our vision less capable of seeing the gift that I've just, um, that I've just described. Your next slide says the objective truth about man. What is this what is this objective truth about man? Well, it's that we're made in the image and likeness of God. This is this is given, right? God says it and we see it in how we're different from the rest of creation. We're able to reason things. Look at the amazing things that man has done. Technologically, medically, um, engineering. I mean, my goodness, you know, it's amazing what man has been able to do. And that's because we're made like God. We're not God, and that's what we have to remember, but we are very much um, like God. And I've written there the givenness of creation, and this just re reflects this idea that who we are as made in the image and likeness of God is not, is not our own doing, right? It's, it's given. Everything we have, we have received. The givenness of creation. So life in its very essence is a gift. Um, we're made in the image and likeness of God. And this is not just a statement of truth. It's also a call, a call for us to respond um, to that, that goodness of life, to become like God in our journey. On page um, slide five, it just talks about God as the author of life. And this is the sacred scriptures that really talk about um, how God has really shown us that he is the author of life. So he's the only one that determines when it comes into being and when it goes home. Okay, and, and that's just very important for us to, to keep in mind. Um, I love the Psalms, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then in Job, in his hand is the very life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Samuel says, the Lord brings to death and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. And in Deuteronomy, only God can say, it is I who bring both life and death. Christianity has kind of brought um, to the forefront this idea that, you know, life begins at, at that first moment. And, and there's no way to really prove that life begins at conception. Um, but... If we think about um, life as being an animation of the person, you know, the soul animates the person. The soul is, is what allows us to be human, but we need our bodies too. So that's why we believe in this body-soul reality, right? But at the first instant of conception, that movement begins, right? In the, in the division of cells and, um, you know, in, in that meiosis that occurs at that very first moment of conception. There's cell, cellular division. There's metabolism that's going on. There's growth that occurs. Once that, that egg and that sperm come together, there is a unique human person that exists, someone that has never existed before. And that DNA that has come together from the mother and the father is different from that of the mother. It's different from that of the father. It's unique and it's human. As I mentioned, the Old Testament validates this, and the Hippocratic Oath from the five, fifth century BC and beyond states it, that you know the goodness of human life, we shall cause no harm, we shall bring no death, we shall do no abortions. That was the first Hippocratic Oath. As you can imagine, that Hippocratic Oath has changed today, and it's um, very superficial. It is not the Hippocratic Oath that Hippocrates put forth in the fifth century BC, and it's, it's a shame. 
it's a shame. And so important for us to kind of recognize that there's a difference between an equality of life ethic, and I want to say equality or sanctity of life ethic, versus equality of life ethic, right? So the, the modern culture focuses on quality of life. You know, if your life, if you're not able to run marathons anymore, if you're not able to produce money, if you're not able to work, if you're not beautiful, then your quality of life must be really bad, which means, you know, why would you want to live anymore, right? Versus the equality or sanctity of life, that every life has meaning, that every life is good. Even a life that is suffering um, is good. Maybe for the sanctity of that person, maybe for the persons that surround him. And so we believe that life is precious at any stage. Um, and so it's important for us to, to, to educate others about that, to, to live that in our elderly, to treat them as, as, as wise and good human persons to whom we owe maybe our, our life, our well-being, um, parents and grandparents who have helped our parents, who have helped ourselves. Um, to move forward in life, who have given us life. Remember the fourth commandment, honor your mother and father. Regardless of who your mother and father are, even if they treated you terribly from the week after you were born, they gave you life. And that is something that we must hang on to. Um, I think sometimes the sanctity of life issue is thought by the culture to be an imposition by the religious, the religious right. But you know, this is a natural, this is just a natural gift. It's, it's part of the natural law. It's not an imposition, um, especially if it's about you. <laughs> and that's really what I think we find sometimes is that, you know, people are all about choice until it's their life that's going to be determined whether or not it's worthy of life or not. And so, um, so all life is good. There is a somewhat of a dualism present, present in today's culture. This dualism that, that really kind of focuses on the good of the Special Olympics, but wants to do away with Down syndrome babies. We have the American Disabilities Act, and yet if we identify that a baby in utero has a disability, we want an abortion. And so these ideas that abortion is somehow separate from the killing of a human person, I think is, is just so misconstrued. And I think this, the, the suffering that um, post-abortive women endure um, is, is such a validation of the difficulty and horror of abortion. Euthanasia, again, you know, we have this idea that if we're no longer um, productive, if we're no longer get to a point where you know, we're contributing, then, um, you know, we don't want to be a burden. And so euthanasia is, it means a good death. <laughs> um, but really, euthanasia is kind of the worst, um, the worst kind of thing you could ever do to a person, right? Because it really tells them that you're not willing to be there with them, to suffer with them, to help them with their suffering, to alleviate their suffering, much of which is often spiritual or financial. Um, and so a lot of times we can help the physical suffering, but that other types of suffering is only compounded by our lack of presence, our lack of compassion. Um, 
And then of course, this idea about IVF, which you know, I think I've talked about a little bit in vitro fertilization is really a life issue, right? Because we're, we're destroying 80% of embryos that are created are destroyed in IVF. The other 20% um, may be implanted and may come to, to new life, but most of them are frozen. Is that the kind of life that we are, you know, willing to put our children into? A life of being in a freezer um, until um, until the end of time, and so in vitro fertilization. Apart from its, it, the reason the church teaches IVF is wrong is because it bypasses the marital embrace. But just as problematic is the life issue that it presents, that it it does not give the child the dignity that it deserves in coming to be in its mother's womb. It puts that child's life at risk because more than 80% will perish as a result of the process. Um, disabilities are enhanced because of in vitro fertilization. Kids that come to be of in vitro fertilization have like six times more um, developmental and um, disabling injuries as a result of the process that's actually used. It puts the woman at risk um, in terms of her own fertility. There's a hyperovulation that is, is caused to occur in in vitro fertilization, which puts a woman at risk for cancer, for um, death, for infertility. Um, and then the life of the child really is, is looked at more as a commodity versus a gift, that this is something that I have produced, that I have put in a Petri dish that I have caused to come together. And so the life of the child is more of a product than a gift. And I don't think anybody does this consciously, but I, I can't imagine like creating my own children and then knowing that, that three or four of them is in a freezer somewhere. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's this kind of idea that this is my right, this is my body. Well, it is not your body anymore when it becomes someone else's. And then embryonic stem cell research, um, again, using embryos. I mean, a lot of times the, the solution, and I put that in quotation marks because it's not a solution, the solution to frozen embryos is embryonic stem cell research. Like, well, let's just use their stem cells to do research, right? Well. This is problematic because basically we're creating embryos then to kill them for their stem cells. And um, the interesting thing about embryonic stem cell research, it's been going on for many years, is that it has yet to provide a cure. It seems to be for many activists, the only way that we're ever gonna cure things like paralysis or multiple sclerosis or um, you know, so many other um, brain abnormalities, and yet there has not been one successful research project as it relates to embryonic stem cell research. Now, the other side of that is adult stem cell research, which is very, very, very um, moral. It's okay to do. Adult stem cell research has brought about amazing discoveries, amazing um, cures. And so, we can never kill a person for a good. This is what we talked about. Remember when we talked about, you know, the act itself, the intention and um, the circumstances. So our, the intention of embryonic stem cell researchers is very good, but you can't kill people to get there, right? And so the action itself 
is the destruction of the embryo in order to take its cells. You know, I think the origins of the culture of death really have um, begun for us um, with this idea of dualism, this separation of the body and the soul, that the body is really kind of just a, um, an instrument to be used. It's really not the person. Like we have this idea that the person is the mind. This is Descartes, right? I think, therefore I am. And that's a lie. You know, everything you do with your body, you do, right? And so we are radically integrated. That's why I, I spent a lot of time on those first couple classes about the radical integration of the human person. So we can't separate the body from the person, okay? And I think sometimes science does this, and we've, we've done this. I mean, even in my nursing, I mean, I was a neuro nurse, right? Or I was an HIV AIDS nurse. So it was like, you know, pieces of people like, no, you're not a nurse of a disease. You're a nurse of a person, right? And so we have all these medical specialties, which, which you know, again, have separated the parts from the whole. And this is a way in which we become calloused the goodness of life. We say the patient in room 13 instead of Mrs. Smith. Um, and so, you know, we have to be so careful to not be, um, have that afflict us as well. Um, I think Germany um, can often be identified as the start of this culture of death. Um, World War I was certainly um, a time in which there was a lack of resources um, in Germany. Prior to that, there were, there were many activists that were asking for rights to die and people who were sick, people again who were debilitated. And so the conversation was going on in the late 1800s about this opportunity or right to die for certain um, illnesses, certain persons who were claiming that right. And then again, um, when World War I came about, we have this lack of resources, which really leads people to make decisions based on goods. And so if we don't have enough goods for the people, then we need to eliminate some people. And um, this became the reality um, in Germany. You know, gen generally cultures have been judged to be more or less civilized based on the manner in which they care for the weak and their most vulnerable mem members. Cultures that have disrespect for the dying elderly and the disabled that they don't care for them in a compassionate ways have been seen as backward. And this appears to be changing. What we used to see as an equality of life ethic for the culture has turned in what, what we would deem to be the quality of life ethic, as I've mentioned. And so the focus of the church, the focus of a Christian should be an emphasis on the intrinsic worth and equal value of every human life, regardless of its stage, of its condition. There are now persons who believe that this traditional ethic will need to be abandoned and it will become acceptable to place relative rather than absolute value on things such as human lives. And as I mentioned earlier, many today see the sanctity of human life as a religious imposition. And it's not. So again, um, how did this be begin? Um, it began, you know, really in Germany. There was a really a proponent of euthanasia who I wrote on your on the last slide his name was Adolf Jost and he was a real proponent of euthanasia in Germany in 1895 um, 
And he argues in a publication called Right to Death that the individual life belongs to the collective, to the state, that the state must own death. Hitler would, would later adopt these same principles. And then in 1913, a man by the name of Gherkin, who was a lung cancer patient, talked about why should we prolong our deaths? Why make us suffer when we could die peacefully today? And so he, re he was requesting a modern euthanasia law to allow others to kill the dying or to kill themselves. World War I really, again, changed a lot of this. There was a lack of resources, mass starvations. There were two doctors that actually wrote a book on euthanasia. Um, one was permitting the destruction of life not worthy of life. <laughs> it's kind of scary, isn't it? So who determines, you know, what is a life not worthy of life? These people were called things like useless eaters. They're eating up our resources. They're, you know, not smart enough to produce. Those that are terminally ill, those who have been wounded in the war, why should we waste our valuable resources on these people? Those that suffered from um, what we used to call mental retardation, incurable idiots, they would be called. And then finally, things like the unconscious. Now, one of those MDs who really was fighting for this would eventually change his mind about his stance, and that was because his own mother um, came into one of these states in which she was still very much alive, um, but she had um, a lack of consciousness. Um, and so all of these things really led to a eugenic program in Germany, which set the stage perfectly for Hitler. So by 1933, this foundation was set. There were things like involuntary sterilization that was happening for those that were blind, those were their deaf, those who had a cleft palate. So people didn't have a choice about whether or not, you know, they could have children. Because they were blind or because they were deaf, they were taken out of that. Because again, we don't want to um, reproduce, right, these, um, these problematic versions of humanity. Between the years of 1933 and 1945, 350,000 persons were sterilized in Germany. 200,000 persons were killed by the medical profession who were deemed undesirable. These included infants, these included senile elderly, and severely wounded soldiers. There were surveys that were done of the German people in 1925, um, and, and parents of, of children with mental disabilities said that, you know, they really believed that they should have the right to kill their children if they had these disabilities. And in 1933, the Nazis actually proposed legalizing these opportunities to kill and so, um, you know, physicians, nurses, the authorities, they were, they were all behind this mentality. There was even a child death program in which a panel of experts would determine who would live. Many children were voluntarily turned over by their parents. Um, and then after that, the next victims who were, dis were the disabled, the retarded adults, mentally disabled, epileptics, polio victims, schizophrenia, senile patients, people who were paralyzed, those who had Huntington's chorea. 
And so what started out as um, an elimination of children with disabilities turned into um, a much larger um, cohort of people. Now there were folks that were against this and certainly the Catholic Church, uh, Bishop Clemens, August Van Gallen, um, spoke out against this and, and Hitler did suspend the euthanasia program in response to that. But the infanticide program continued. There was never a doctor or a nurse that was charged. And yet the Nuremberg trials reveal much, right? After World War II, um, many doctors um, received the death penalty as a result of the killings and the torture that occurred during Nazi Germany. Now the United States was not unaffected by this, right? And we see it today, this dualistic mentality endures. Um, we claim Christianity, we say that we have rights, um, and then we, have, we say we have rights based on, you know, our own autonomy, um, but we separate, you know, what God has joined in that. We decide when life begins, we decide when life ends. We forget that freedom and truth, there's a difference. We don't exalt freedom, we exalt truth. And our freedom is not freedom to do anything we want. It's freedom that should be used for the good and the truth. As I mentioned, the incarnation is, is really the last word. We look to Christ, right, to recognize the goodness of the human person. The word was made flesh. And the mystery of Christ reveals to us the dignity of the human person is totality. And that's what Jesus came to show us. Remember, this was the last, the final reason for the incarnation. That he would, he would show us what it means to be human, the value of our humanity, and the dignity of human life linked to the very, to the very beginning all the way through the end of life. The next few slides that I've put here just kind of tell you that you know, just normal human development. I, I just think it's, it's kind of amazing if you look at normal human development. And again, it just shows you that this, this movement of the human person, which indicates life, because remember we say that the soul um, kind of is, is the form of the body. The soul is what makes someone alive. And it's, it, it's, life is indicated by metabolism, by, um, by um, reproduction. It's, it's, it's determined by um, uh, all these, all these um, indicators of life. And that's what we see in normal human development and just embryonic development. Um, and so here we have a single cell embryo, which is something different from both its parents. Um, it's distinct. Then we have a three-day embryo. Again, you see there's been a change. It is no longer a sperm. It's no longer an ova. It is a human person. And then we have five to seven day embryo, and then a four week embryo. 23 to 26 days, the heart is beating. Then we have a six week embryo. Then we have an infant, and then we have an adult. And so all of these are, are just kind of wonderful examples for you of the embryonic period, um, the rapid growth of the embryo. Um, again, just the appearance of this little little person um, is obviously human. And so, um, so I just think it's beautiful to kind of read and, and recognize that um, 
you know, by the time that someone is 56 days old, they have webbed fingers and toes, they have wrists, elbows, all of their their organs are formed, their eyelids are formed, their ears, upper lip and tip of the nose become recognizable. And so it's pretty, pretty amazing. Eight weeks, there's just no, no denying um, this little person. Um, and then the three to four month old fetus again, um, shows us again, just that beautiful development. I've shown you a picture of a 21 week old fetus here. This is the story of um, Samuel Aris. It's a beautiful story, really, and it's um, it's about a child that was um, that was actually uh, born. Well, he when he came to be in his mother's womb, they identified that he had a, a neurological complication, which would expose his spinal cord um, to the fluids. Um, in his mother's womb, which would actually paralyze him and cause him to be paralyzed from the neck down, probably also give him developmental and um, cognitive abnormalities. And so his mother, who was a Christian and a nurse, um, was encouraged to abort. Um, she did not. She actually just went to find other doctors and nurses that might be able to help her, and she found that at Vanderbilt University. There was a doctor there that was doing in utero surgery on, on fetuses that had this issue, and he would close up the opening in the spinal cord in order to um, prevent that damage to the spinal cord, and so this nurse went there and had this surgery done. The physician himself was not a big pro-life activist, um, and because it was research, they had a photographer, a medical photographer in the room to film this whole instance. And, um, and the photographer actually was an atheist. He was pro-choice, very much pro-abortion. And after the surgery was completed, they were about to close up the mother's uterus, and the uterus began to shake. And all of a sudden, out of the uterus came this little hand, which you see in the slide. And the doctor just kind of spontaneously put his finger by the baby, and the baby squeezed the doctor's finger. This is a 21-week-old fetus. You can Google Samuel Aris on um, Google, and you can find this same picture. Samuel Aris um, actually grew up to be um, a very normal young man. He's in his 20s now. This happened a long time ago. Um, he wore braces for a bit, but he played sports. Um, he's um, in college, and he is a living representation of what the gospel of life um, can be for all of us. The photographer actually became a Christian, and um, I don't know if the doctor ever became adamantly pro-life, but... What an amazing, amazing witness. So again, I think all of us have to kind of, you know, ponder, you know, the, the truth that medical science gives to us, um, the teaching of our church, our own experience um, of human life itself, that it is a great good, um, and, and really ponder that and decide, you know, what does it mean to be human? Are we persons or are we property? Um, to whom do we choose to assign a value? Does that not make us little gods if we decide to do that? Who will benefit? Will it be the powerful over the weak, the rich over the poor? Who will decide who lives and who dies? You know, I think that, I think that our, our reason can discover um, that life is good. 
that it is a gift and there is someone who has authored all of our lives um, that is much greater than any of us um, by ourselves. And that's the one to whom we, we give our worship, um, we give our gratitude and our thanks, and who we call um, Jesus, Father, and Spirit. And so that ends our presentation on the Gospel of Life, and I look forward to chatting with all of you about this presentation and the seven deadly sins and seven lively virtues for our next live streamed class. God bless.